It's good to worship together. Thank you, Dustin, for your leadership, worship team. Appreciate you guys very much. Well, this morning, Mark and Cheryl uh, are en route to Israel. So we have a group from our church, about 45 or so people that's going to be leaving on Tuesday. Mark and Cheryl are getting a bit of a head start to be able to host them uh, to the best of their ability. So pray for uh, the Hitchcocks. Also pray for uh, the larger group in our church that's going to not just enjoy a vacation. This isn't just time away. This is a uh, a real milestone sort of spiritual experience uh, that I think is very important uh, in the life of a believer if they're able to, to, to make that trip to Israel. So we'll pray for them. But go ahead and get out your Bibles. If you grabbed a bulletin on the way in, maybe there's some notes in there. You can take a look at those too. In uh, 1970, the quartet of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, they released a song that I hijacked for the title of my sermon this morning. And I don't really know how to interpret that song's lyrics uh, same is true for most of their drug-induced songs. <laughs> Not that it's a bad song, um, but I arrived at this topic of, of teaching children and, and family discipleship because of a text message that I got last Sunday afternoon. Uh, the message was from Connie Goodson, our children's director, and she was informing me that last Sunday morning we ministered to 383 unique children. So infant through fifth grade, that's more kids than we've ever had on a Sunday morning ever, 383. And so here's a bit of perspective on that. If, if you take the total number of people at Faith Bible Church on February, February 25th, last Sunday, over 27% of the people here were between the ages of zero to around 10. So currently, one in every four people attending our church is an infant, a toddler, or an elementary age child. I'm not even counting 6th to 12th graders. Those are, those are our students. I'm talking about the little kids, 0 to 10 years. That's one in four of us. And that should bless you. That, that should bless you because we have a multi-generational church body in an era where I think that's becoming increasingly difficult to achieve. And that should also bless you because the future of Faith Bible seems very, very exciting with those kinds of numbers. But it should at the same time burden you because we have a lot of work to do if we are going to teach our children well. And here's the reality. The children that go to Sunday school and Awana and, and VBS and maybe a few other church programs, they are here one, two hours a week. That's about it. Maybe three hours for a few. And, and we do a lot of good work in that amount of time. But the reality is the actual training and discipleship of these kids, the education that's really going to stick, that comes Monday through Saturday. That comes at home. And so this week I read a twist on the old adage. You've heard the old adage, give a man a fish and feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. The twist is this, teach a child on Sunday, feed her for a day. Teach a parent to teach a child, feed her for a lifetime. And that's true, isn't it? Our children's ministry will not single-handedly train and disciple these 383 going on 400 kids. They just won't. But their parents necessarily will. So today, I want to talk about what that looks like. How can you teach your children well? And here's what I realize. I realize that not all of you are parents. Maybe you're grandparents. And if you're a grandparent, I, I hope you know that, that this is for you as well. You can 
especially use this. To, d- to this day, my wife's favorite person in the world is her grandpa Jacoby. His love and his care for her over the years has just made a massive, massive impact on her life. You grandparents, perhaps better than even a child's parents, can leverage great influence over your grandchildren. Or maybe you're a single person. You've never married. You have no children. How does this apply to you this morning? Well, what what I want you to hear and understand is that as a single man or a single woman, it is God that has called you into this place, into his body. In the scripture, the Bible describes a local church as as his household. God is the father. We are his kids. This is his house. We're a church family. And so you, single person, you very much have a place in discipling families amongst this larger family. You absolutely do. And just personally, by the grace of God, there have been two young, godly, single women, one before we moved back in 2012, she's now married, and another woman now that we've come back. These ladies have played a part in discipling my two daughters. They encourage them, and they love them, and they pray for them, and I am so very grateful for their presence in the life of my girls. They are to my girls a preacher that is different than their dad and a godly woman who is different than their mother. And we need this as parents. We need those who will pour into our children, those who are other than us. So you singles, again, you have an important role to play in this whole effort. I know that most church programming is geared toward couples and families, and perhaps we need to overcome that blind spot but singles, know that you are wanted. You're wanted in on this. But parents, I'm going to be talking most directly to you this morning. And before I get going, I just want to speak something into your heart, and I want you to actually believe it and be okay with it. And so here's what I want to say, and I want you to say this to yourself. Say this in your heart, in your mind, right now, I don't have to be a perfect parent. I don't have to be a perfect parent. hope you're saying that to yourself. You don't because you can't and you're not, first of all. (laughs) So just breathe. You're not. And here's the greater news. God hasn't asked you to be, and it's not the expectation of God that you will be a perfect parent. He knows you can't be. He knows you won't be. And furthermore, let me just take take something else off of you really, really quickly. You will not, by your parenting save your children. You hear that? The the power to save is not in your hands. Jonah 2.9 says it, salvation is of the Lord, which means salvation is not of mom or dad. My own life is a testament to that. I I never once heard my own father pray, but somehow I and my two siblings, we ended up in vocational ministry, all three of us. Grace is amazing, and it's not contingent upon mom or dad necessarily. But with that, should you strive to be a really good mom or a really good dad? Well, of course. But your your child's salvation doesn't hinge on you. And parental perfection is a crushing expectation, and I hope that you can get out from underneath it. So one of my goals today is not to do a drive-by guilting of our parents. Right? We We have great moms and dads in this church, really great ones. But let's be honest. This task, it feels epic and impossible. We feel unqualified, which is, which is why I just want to encourage your hearts today. Educating your children will be the hardest thing you ever, ever do 
And like most hard things, it'll be the most blessed and the most fruitful as well. So go ahead and turn to the fifth book in the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy. Make your way to the sixth chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> and just as some background to Deuteronomy, the title of the book means second law. And so simply stated, it's a restatement of the law of God for a new generation. So as you know, the Lord uh, has built a people for himself. It's the people of Israel. These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This people, essentially this big family, through the events that are described in the closing chapters of Genesis, they wind up in Egypt. And subsequently, they become enslaved to the Egyptians. And through the leadership of a very famous biblical figure named, named Moses, God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. And the Hebrew people, they, they, they were enslaved by one of the great world empires, but without a fight, without an army, without a single weapon at their disposal, a group numbering about two million people was freed to return to their homeland, to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to be theirs. And on that trip to Canaan, they spent about a year at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God spoke and he gave them his law. He told them, okay, here's who I am. And here's how I want you to live in the land. And this is the kind of society that I want you to build there. And this is what worshiping me looks like. And here's how family life needs to go. 613 laws he gave to them. And then as they moved on from there to, to take their inheritance, something very, very tragic happens. They are gripped by fear and unbelief. And God says, okay, this generation, you will not take the land. That, that trip from Sinai to entering the land, it should have taken about 12 days. But because of their sin, God said, this generation is not going to enter in. And the people of God wandered there for about 40 years. And so when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God, they're again, they're poised now to take the land. The, the wandering is over. They're encamped in Moab, a place just east of the Jordan River. And Moses, who is now old and gray, he proceeds to reteach this new generation, this new group of Israelites. He wants them to know their history, a history that they owe to the goodness and the grace of God. And he wants to teach them the law that's been given to them by God. And so Deuteronomy is essentially a sermon series by Moses to the gathered people who are about to enter into the promised land. And as you know, this sermon is important to Moses because he's not going to go in. He doesn't get to lead them into the land of promise. Joshua will lead them, and Moses, he will descend a mountain and die as the Israelites enter into their blessing. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, after Moses, after he's recounted the history of God's people, after he's told them of their, of their great redemption out of Egypt, he then begins to get into the law. And as we arrive at chapter 6, he's getting into the meat of this teaching on the law. And let's just read this together, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 6. Seth's already read a good portion of this earlier in the service. But together, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, inspired of the Holy Spirit. It's Moses who writes, Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, 
by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. And what this also is, is a 3,500-year-old sermon that's been preserved for us. And so we arrive at a text like this, and we say, man, does this apply to us today? Does this apply to the church? I think it does, at least for a few reasons. Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament at least 100 times. Jesus, he quoted Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. When he was tempted by Satan in the desert, Jesus is answering Satan with verses out of Deuteronomy. And this particular section of the book, particularly verses 4 and 5, what we're really going to focus on this morning, this is the very core of Jewish teaching. Verses 4 and 5, known as the Shema, because the English word here is the Hebrew word Shema, and that's how verse 4 starts. The Shema was prayed, was, excuse me, uh, prayed twice a day by a devout Jew. When a Jewish child was, was able to speak, the Shema was the first scripture he was trained to say and to memorize. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in scripture, what he answered with to the Pharisees who were asking him was the Shema. And very explicitly, verse 7 tells us that these words, these truths... What's here before us, this is essential training material. And so let's get into our outline where we're going to look at training our children. I have five points this morning. First, we want to train our children as monotheists. Monotheism is, of course, the belief in one God. The whole Bible is monotheistic, but the book of Deuteronomy, it is ferociously so. And this is because the Jews, they are entering into a land that is filled with pagan religion. They're they're, they're leaving Egypt where many gods were worshipped. And as they come into the land, they're going to be confronted with the Canaanite gods and the Amalekite gods and and the Jebusite gods and the Philistine gods, gods of fertility and wine, gods of the harvest. Just a glut of false religion and idolatry is what they're about to be surrounded by. And so the directive is... Here, listen, we have one God. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. I am that I am is how this God introduced himself to Moses. And he alone is the Lord. He's the covenant God, the God of relationship and goodness. This God is unique and soul and and primary. And Israel, he is our God. He is over all things. All the other gods are not gods at all. This one God is the God who is the creator. He is all-powerful. So education, you knowing this God, it starts with this character of God, with this description of God. 
So in that day, when there were as many gods as there were tribes or, or, or nations, God, he wants his people to be devoted to him and to him alone. And that's because he alone is God. Makes sense. And what's interesting is that in our day, th- this problem is multiplied because today there are almost as many gods as there are people. And I'm not talking about world religions necessarily. I'm talking about how everyone, at least in the Western world, everyone has become an authority to themselves. And so everyone has their own view of God. And I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, God, he made man in his image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. We, we, we try to create gods of our own liking, gods that look like us. Just a recent example of people making God out who making God out to who they want him to be. There was a very popular celebrity who said this week that she would run for president in 2020, but only if God told her to. My question to her is, who is this God who's going to talk to you? How do you know when he speaks? What if he told you other authoritative things? What if if he, she, or it, or or, or whatever gave divine guidance on on sexual ethics, ethics that that maybe were different from the current social norms? What if he provided guidance that was at odds with your personal preferences? What if he was real clear on an issue like abortion? If he can tell you to run for president, can he have authority elsewhere in your life? How do you get to pick and choose how you hear from this God and what exactly it is that he says to you? You see, the pantheon has grown. It's not just the gods of mythology or pagan religion anymore. It's every human heart that fashions a God for himself. Which is why God is saying in Deuteronomy 6.4, if you want to know me, you have to know me as I really am. You can't just make me up to suit your tastes. You have to know me as I reveal myself to you, as I show myself in my word. In the world, they say to this, you mean you think there's only one God? Are you, I mean, are you really that narrow? And we say, no, not really. No more narrow than you. I mean, think about it. There's only one you, right? Don't you believe there's only one you? If someone you hardly knew came up to you and said, I'm writing a book about you, you, know, you would say, oh, oh, really? You hardly know me. What's going to be in this book? And the person says, well, I like to think of you as an astronaut. You're brilliant at math, but you're sort of abrasive and terrible with relationships. And you say, well, I'm afraid of heights. I flunked math, but I actually think I'm a pretty nice person. And that person who's writing the book says, well, it it doesn't matter. I like to think of you my way better. Would you be upset at that? Well, at least a little bit. Why? Because there's a reality to you that that person would need to honor, right? And so if God exists, which he necessarily does, there's a reality to him. And it's good of him to want to be known according to who he really is and not according to who we want him to be. Tim Keller, pastor and author from New York City, he points out a beautiful and ironic truth in this area. He says, the God your heart most desperately needs is the God your heart can't create. The God your heart most desperately needs is the God your heart cannot create. And that's an important statement because at some point in our lives, we feel worthless or guilty or awful about ourselves. And in that moment, how can a God that you have invented 
be of any real help to you? How can a God of your own design tell you that you are valuable, tell you that you are pardoned, tell you that you're loved transcendently and unconditionally? You can't. You know it's a sham. Something else to point out here about that word one that's there at the end of verse four. That's a Hebrew word that, com- that, that communicates composite oneness or unified oneness. It's the word used to describe the one flesh relationship of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, the two who become one. And I point that out because what we have here are hints of the triune nature of God here. So that significant truth is revealed in, in fullness later on as, as we get more and more of God's revelation. But what we have here is consistent with that truth that would be to come. That composite oneness, unified oneness, that the Lord our God, our God is one. And the basic point, though, is that the God of the universe, he is at the center of Christian education and discipleship discipleship at every single level. And so that's why we start with God. That's why the Shema starts with God. Listen, hear, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And to this point, you're, you, know, you, you parents, you're like, okay, one God, we got it. No problem. We're already there. Second point, train your children by modeling love for God. It's fascinating to me what he doesn't say next. He doesn't say, hero Israel, do the Ten Commandments and teach your kid to do the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's the code you must submit to in order to teach the, 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 the next generation how to be my people. No, he starts with, love the Lord your God. Love this God who has spoken to you and delivered you. Why does he go there? Why does he go there? Because what you do is driven by what you love. What you do is driven by what you love. You know, we like to think that we're primarily thinkers. We're really not. We're primarily lovers. We like to think that discipleship is about learning, more information about God, more theological acumen, more verses committed to memory. But but none of that is really the point at all. Those activities are undertaken to shape and define what you love. Look at verse 6. It says, these things I've commanded are to be on your heart. Not your frontal lobe, your heart. That's the place that drives your desires. That's the place that dictates the activities that you engage in. Your heart leads you to what you want and to what you do. You, know, you go out to eat, and you look at the menu, and you go, yeah, that superfood salad looks really good. I think I'll go with the pasta and ice cream. Why? Because that's what you want, right? If you don't order that, it's because you want to be healthy more than you want the pasta and ice cream. We're driven by our desires, by what we want, by what we love. This is why the Old Testament summary statement about how God and people are to relate to one another, the summary statement is not, okay, here I am, this is God, submit. It's not here I am, this is God, obey, fear, serve. 
No, that the irreducible center of our relationship to God is love. Love your God. I find that fascinating. And I think that's there because it's what we love that drives and motivates our lives. And that's why the Shema doesn't start with do what you know is right, master the rules, know all the do's and don'ts. That's not where God starts. God says, no, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with everything that you are. Not just your volition in your choices, not just your emotion in your feelings. We're far more complex than will and feelings. Loving God is a whole way of being, heart, soul, and strength. So mom and dad, the big question to you is then this. How does this mode of being find expression in your home? Or even better, how is love for God cultivated in your life? How do you stir up affections for the Lord? We'll talk about this a little more in a second. But with your kids, what you need to know, and what I think you probably already realize, is that discipleship is never not happening. Whether you're serious about it or not, you are always modeling a relationship to God. You're, you're continually modeling a posture toward church. You are showing them what, what serving others looks like, showing them what, but what being kind and patient and generous looks like. That's going on all the time. And I mean, we, we, we all want our kids to love the Lord. We pray that over and over and over again. But what examples of loving the Lord actually exist in their lives? What do you do as a family that stirs up those affections for God? You know, Mark gave a great message a couple of weeks ago about, about being committed to the gathered church. Assembly required was the title. And I realized that, that it takes a, a great effort for a family to get here on a Sunday morning, particularly if you have little ones. Great effort. But each time you make it here, do your kids, do they watch you just sort of file in and speak to almost no one and mumble through the worship songs and yawn through the sermon, particularly today, and then just leave in a hurry? Is the whole scene basically affectionless? I mean, if gathering with the people of God to describe, you know, ascribe glory to God and hear from the word of God, if that doesn't stir your love for God, I mean, what, what does? I can't imagine anything does. And I have to be careful here as well because, you know, I love Bible knowledge and I love Christian truth and I love being right and I love a good apologetic defense of Christianity. I love God's good gifts and blessings. But none of those things is actually loving God. How do you know if you love God? Very simply, it changes you. It changes you. The, the, the mark of a real relationship with God through Christ is that love gains ground. Love increases in your heart and life. You, in effect, you love more, lo you love with a greater capacity, and you love what God himself loves. If you're sitting there and, and, and you're questioning whether or not you really love God, if you're really not assured of, of whether or not you you love the Lord. Perhaps it's because you've never been truly convinced that he loves you.
He loves you. We love a God who loved us first. He doesn't sit idly by waiting on us to love him. No, he has made every effort to say, I love you. I've put my affection on you. I've chosen you. I've sent my son to die a heinous death and, a, and to be a sacrifice for you. I love you. That's what scripture teaches. Until you're wakened to that great love of God, I don't know that you will love God in a way that's being described here in Deuteronomy 6. You have to see his love for you first. You have to see the great sacrifice that was Christ on the cross first and how that communicates a kind of love that maybe we've never even scratched the surface of, an unraveling kind of love, a love that will break you down, a love that will make you new. It's the love of God. I don't know if you caught the funeral service of Billy Graham this last week. It was moving. I didn't catch all of it, but I caught some really good bits and pieces. And there was one scene where Ruth Graham, who was Billy's daughter, she got up and gave a bit of a eulogy. It wasn't long, but it was very, very powerful. And Ruth had a prodigal season in her life. She had uh, been divorced, and then she rushed into uh, another marriage, a marriage that her father had told her not to rush into. That marriage was very, very short. It didn't last any time at all. And so she recounted the story of, of driving home, of, of coming back to North Carolina and making her way up the mountain side on which her family lived and coming into the driveway and being met there by her father. And as she got out of the car, he did nothing but put his arms wide open and wrap them around her and repeatedly told her that he loved her and told her, welcome home. And she finished her story, not a dry eye in the house, she finished her story by saying, you know, my father wasn't God, but he showed me what God is like. That was powerful. And as, as, as dads, your relationship to God has the capacity of showing your children what God is like, at least a little bit. And so we train our children in monotheism. We train them in loving the Lord and loving what God loves in an attempt to show them what God is like. And then we disciple our kids in moments each day. And this is the place where I'd like to get kind of practical. And, and the, writer, the, the writer helps us here. It's like, it's like the writer knows. He knows that I've got three kids in soccer and three in piano and and two in orchestra, and one playing basketball, and lots and lots of homework. You know, it's like he knows. He, he, he knows that we do a lot of drive through chicken nuggets, and, and our mornings are super hectic, and we've got just tons going on, and can't find shoes, and all of these different things. And I say that he knows because what he doesn't prescribe here is a family devotion program. He doesn't say, get them up before dawn and teach them theology proper. There's not a liturgy for family worship in, in Scripture that helps us train our kids. Now, we've done family worship time in our home. I love family worship. We also do a lot of Bible reading around the kitchen table. But truth be told, in 13 years of doing that, you know what? Revival has never broken out. <laughs> Angels have never showed up. Someone typically says something or does something kind of inappropriate <laughs> on, most, on most occasions. 
And, and, and fixed times of devotion, fixed times of Bible reading, those are really, really great. Do those things. But what parents are, are being instructed to do here is not necessarily that. It's to diligently engage their kids in spiritual conversations and instruction at all times during the day. So if you view discipling your kids as a box that you check after you read sort of the Bible story at bedtime, then, then you're not really doing what's being prescribed here. What's prescribed here is a parent who filters everything through their relationship with God and their knowledge of God and their love for God, and they do it in such a way that all the events and conversations and dilemmas of each day, they always come back to God. So if you think I'm going to give you some you know, regimented family devotional program, relax. I'm not. I'm not going to go there. But I am saying when you sit in your house, do you sit in your house? When you walk by the way, do you drive around with your kids? We all do. They're sort of in, we've got them there, too. They can't run off. They're, they're in jail. They're with us. There's no jumping out of the car. When you lie down, do you put your kids to bed? When you rise, do you feed your kids breakfast? As these moments and other moments come and go each day, talk about God. Engage their hearts, have, have meaningful spiritual conversations. And at that point, you know what you're doing? You're teaching your kids diligently these things. But here's the deal. If you're not walking with God and you don't love God and you're not processing reality with the word of God, you're not going to be able to do this very well. It's going to always seem forced to you and it's going to always seem disingenuine to them. But seize the moments they're there every day. We let them get consumed with screens. But we miss opportunities to have great conversations. Let's keep our foot on the gas. At milestones in the upbringing, in their upbringing. And I'll admit, this, this point is a departure from the text, but this is a really good M word, milestones, and I think it's important to point out. Part of growing up is arriving at different milestones, these different transition points that are, that are significant and noteworthy. And, and I think parents, oftentimes, we, we fly past them and miss really good opportunities for discipleship. And so my encouragement to you is, is to think, think hard about things like your child's baptism or when they reach certain important ages or when they hit puberty or their high school graduation. What are you doing at those milestones that is actually meaningful and spiritually significant? What kind of encouragement are you surrounding them with? Don't just passively acknowledge these moments. Don't just let it be an awkward talk or some big-time party with fun decorations and awesome gifts. Lean hard toward meaning. You know, my girls, they turned 13 this month. 13. You know, Mandy and I, we have some things planned that will hopefully encourage them on a deep level. Don't worry, girls. We'll do fun stuff too. But we want to encourage you on a deep level. My son, he turns 10 next month. You know, I got some things I want to do with him beyond just double-digit candles on his cake. We need to take advantage of the milestones. They're there for us. What I'm basically saying is that we need to mark a pathway to, to, to manhood and to womanhood with clear signs. Mark a pathway to manhood and womanhood for our kids. 
And I want this for my kids because I don't think I had this at all. I honestly think I entered into manhood about three months ago. <laughs> and I say that because three months ago I, heard, I had my first EKG. It's the most adult thing that's ever happened to me. I was like, I guess I'm grown up now. I'm fine, by the way. But, but I don't want Jack to have to guess. Am I a man? Am I responsible? Am I to be courageous? Am I to reject passivity? What? I don't want him to have a guess when that happens. I want that signs to be very, very clear. And then finally, the last point before we go to the Lord's table, we train our children to manifest a life of obedience. Now, the Jews, they would eventually interpret verses 8 and 9 hyper-literally. And so they would put the Shema on a small scroll and put it in a little box, and they would call it a phylactery, and they would attach it to their forehead. And they would put the Shema in another little box, and they would strap it to the back of their hand, and they would put another little box on the entrance to their house. And that's not what's actually being taught here. What's here is a description of a family that has given way to loving God and committed themselves to knowing him well. And so individually, mom and dad, when your hearts are stirred for Jesus Christ, your thought life is Godward. It's like you have the Shema tied to your forehead. The work of your hands is marked by faithfulness and commitment and service. It's almost as if the Shema is written on your hands. And as these two things are happening in the car and in bed and waking up in the morning and, and even at some other set times here and there throughout the day, you're talking about and thinking about and, and pointing to the beauty of, of loving Christ. That then transforms the home in such a way that the home begins to shine brightly in a dark world. It's almost as if the Shema is written on the door of your home. And then when you have a family unit that's shining and that family routinely comes together with, with a broader church family in which God is the Father, then you have a group of families that form a greater family and that body becomes a bright light in the community. You see some things start to be written on the gates. But it all boils back to the basic family unit, back to the people who are loving the one true God and who train their kids to love him the same way. Now, I admit, there's a lot of other things I could have talked about. Discipline's a huge part of this. I didn't even go there. Technology's a huge part of this. Movies and media, and there's, there's, there's just so many different things we could discuss when talking about training our kids. But at the very front, first things first, the basis for all of it is knowing who God is and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was C.S. Lewis. He said this. This is great. He said, every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. I want to invite those who are serving the Lord's Supper to go ahead and make your way to uh, the front of the room, almost said the back of the room. Make your way up here and begin to hand out these elements. As you know, we practice open communion at, at Faith Bible Church, which means all those who have trusted in Christ are invited to the Lord's table this morning. 
If you've never taken the Lord's Supper at Faith Bible, simply take each element as they're passed, hold on to them, and then I'll give you some instructions here in just a moment as to when to take them. And as we continue to sort of prepare for this meal together, I want to draw your attention to another verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's verse 20. You don't have to turn there. Just receive the elements as they're passed. I'm going to read this verse to you. It says, When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And what this outlines here is is how the parent answers when the child says, but why? Why do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Which that's a very childlike thing to ask. Why? And the answer is not because he said so, which is a very adult answer to give. What the answer here is, it's a story. It's a story, again, about the love of God. This, this story is the gospel, or at least the Old Testament version of the gospel, which is the Exodus. So the answer of the father in this scenario is, son, we, we love God because he has done something so amazing and so miraculous. Let me tell you the Passover story, son. And what's the Passover story? It's, it's, it's when the blood of a spotless lamb was painted on the doorpost so that death would pass over the house. A blood sacrifice was used by God to to spare us and to set us free, son. So before the law could be posted on our doorpost, the blood of the lamb, it was painted there. Rather than our sins being judged by God as the Egyptians' sins were, our sins were were passed over and, and we were spared. And to that beautiful answer, I suppose an, an astute son or daughter might ask, but what about our sins? They were passed over, but they weren't taken away. They weren't taken away. Do, do, do we have to fear being judged for our sins? And to that, an honest Israelite father would say, I don't know how our sins will be taken away from us. I don't know. But we know, because we've read the rest of the story, when John the Baptist showed up, what was his declaration? When he saw the Lord Jesus from afar, he said, There he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. I suppose it's right to take communion solemnly and and, and reverently. But because of the number of children in the room... I'm not one who thinks that it needs to be taken quietly. Because of what's being remembered and recounted as we take this supper, moms and dads, you should be leading little ones in remembering what brings us to the table this morning. This is but another part of the training. We cannot assume that these kids will grasp the importance of this just because the room is quiet. They must grasp its importance because we tell them the story of what we are remembering. Our sins have not just been passed over, they have been taken away. Praise be to God for giving us not just his law, but for giving us himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins that we've committed.
Let's go to the Lord just in silence now as we prepare our hearts to take the supper. Think upon these things and prepare your heart for the meal. Scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks for the bread before we take it together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the coming of your son, you sending your one and only son. Him embodying righteousness. Him also taking that body to the cross where it was broken. We celebrate and thank you for that broken body. After he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray for the cup. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your son who came and was crucified and that sacrifice, that blood sacrifice is the thing that cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. Through him, you have taken our sins away from us, separating us from them as far as the east is from the west. We thank you for the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, the gospel has been set before us today. As we've enjoyed this meal, in it we see truth, truth about your love for us, truth about what you've done to be in relationship with us, truth about who we are and how bad off we were without your intervening grace. So Lord, we, we thank you for coming to us for loving us first, and for calling us into love relationship with you. It's only there that we have abundant life. It's only there that we flourish and know what it means to truly be, to be alive. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our time of benediction. This is Psalm 145. The psalmist writes, I will extol you, my God and King. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Declare those works as you go from here today. Yours are dismissed.